This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 24th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. It's dollars back here after taking off a couple of weeks to finish up our tax season this year. I'm going to talk to you about some of the stuff that's gone on during that time frame. Now, the last time I talked to everybody here was back, I believe, on the 3rd of April. So we've had a few things happen since then in April as we were all in the final push for the tax season. I thought I'd talk about some of those things. We have a few others that I've kind of left off this week because we have a bunch going on that I plan to put on next week's broadcast. So we'll talk a little bit there. But this week, let's see what we talk about. We're going to go over a case where yet another taxpayer failed to establish that either spouse qualified as a real estate professional, which eliminated the court having to worry about the other question, which was, did either of them materially participate in the rental activities? We're also going to talk about something that I've always found kind of interesting ever since I first became aware of it, the concept of a SPIF program and the fact that a SPIF is not a separate trade or business of the employee. We'll talk about what a SPIF is and also why it's got a weird treatment that confuses a lot of people and may very well have confused the tax professional working with this particular taxpayer. The IRS has released a revised form 3115, which now you are required to use. We are past April 18th. You are allowed to continue using the older version through April 18th, but now we have a new version. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. We had an IRS letter to Senator Conrin, Corner, I should say, uh, related to private or basically professional employer organizations and how that interacts with the employee retention tax credit. We'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, this week, I'll close out discussing the fact that uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, has published a FAQ, more detailed FAQ, on the Corporate Transparency Act reporting. And remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. I want to remind you about the fact that we have a much more detailed set of FAQs you can get on their website. And we'll talk a little bit about what's going on there. Let's start this off this week because we're sort of packed. We're talking about the case of Drusella versus Commissioner. The tax court summary opinion 2023-12 issued on April the 3rd. Now, this is one of many court cases that over the years, taxpayers have lost on the issue of trying to claim they were real estate professionals, allowing them to claim their rental losses. A big red flag in this case, which is a major reason why it falls apart, uh, I suspect there would have been other problems, but definitely a major reason to start with is the fact that both spouses here had a full-time job. And as we'll discover, it can be virtually impossible, at least within reason, uh, to get the tax court to believe that you could potentially work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year at a job, which is over 2,000 hours, and still be able to find more hours than 2,000, because We'll talk about how that rule requires it to be involved in your real estate activities. And the courts are skeptical at best. And certainly, if you're going to actually show that, it's not impossible. You're going to show that you're going to need really excellent set of records. And normally, the problem is that people that go to court on this thing have really bad sets of records that just doesn't even get close to what they need. And in this case, though, the fundamental flaw at the end of the day, which is also talking about what you have to be able to prove, was that the taxpayers had no evidence whatsoever of how many hours they worked on their standard jobs as employees. And remember, even if that employment is in a real estate business, it doesn't count toward your real estate activity tests unless you have more than a 5% ownership in that enter enterprise, which generally means that, yeah, you really just can't have a full-time job aside from being a real estate organization that you control and be able to become a real estate pro. Not impossible, but very, very difficult. So let's start with this. Let's talk first about the definition of a real estate professional. Now, Internal Revenue Code Section 469C7B. Now, this definition applies to a taxpayer for a taxable year if, and there are two tests here. First, 
more than one half of the personal services performed in trades or business by the taxpayer during such taxable year are performed in real property trades or business in which the taxpayer materially participates. Now, what this means is you have to find all activities that the taxpayer materially participates in, and you have to document how many hours. So you have to prove A to the service that you found all such activities. You have to prove B the exact number of hours you worked. And taxpayers may think, no, no, no problem here. But if I don't have documentation, then that means I didn't work any hours. No, if you don't have documentation, it means we're going to assume you work 24-7. You know, in essence, you need documentation or you're never winning this. And you need documentation, not just on your rental properties, but I need documentation of the hours spent on the other property, on the other activity. Because without that, you know, unless you could show that you basically had over half, more than more than 12 hours a day, every day of the year, so that I use up over half the hours that could even theoretically be available, I'm not going to be able to carry this one. We'll discover that's the problem here. Remember, the second test is that you had to perform more than 750 hours of services during the taxable year in real property, trades, or businesses in which the taxpayer materially participates. Now, the real test here is your client's going to be facing one or the other test. If they have other activities, the full-time jobs or jobs of any sort, and they spend more than 750 hours in that job, which again, if it's a full-time job, you're well over 750, then your real problem is showing you spend more time in real estate than that other job. If the other job's hours are, let's say, less than 750, we can show that, prove it's less than 750 hours, then not going to worry about our real estate activities being more than that because they'll automatically be more than that if we meet the 750-hour test. The problem I find way too often is taxpayers, those with second jobs, tend to concentrate primarily on meeting the 750, and reality is the 750 is a totally irrelevant test for taxpayers with full-time jobs. They have to show they spent more hours in the real estate activity than the hours they spent uh, involved in their regular nine to five jobs. That's gonna be the case. The other case to remember is, as noted here in the section, a taxpayer, if you have this, while normally for passive activity versus uh, you know, mature participation, non-mature participation, generally, if we're a married couple, we can count both of our hours to meet the test to show we materially participated. While that is still true for material participation for your rentals, it's not true for proving you're a real estate pro. At least one of the spouses on their own, ignoring all hours from the other spouse, must qualify as a real estate pro. Once they've qualified, one of them qualifies as a real estate pro, then and only then can I use both of their hours to show that they materially participated in the real estate activity. That's the key takeaway here. Now, generally, why do we want this? Because remember, rentals are generally considered passive by definition. But if you're a real estate pro, then we don't worry about the general rule that rental real estate is passive by definition. And the provision shall be applied as if each, as if each interest of the taxpayer so each rental property is a separate activity. Now that second test is one that makes it difficult to show material participation in your various rentals because you have to prove each one separately. And again, having all of them in one big you know, pile, having all of them as one would be a lot easier. That does put in something that won't impact this case, but you are allowed to elect if you wish to to treat all of them as a single activity. And the regulations walk you through how to do that. Once you do that, you're in for good on that election. Uh, generally, since we're probably going to want to show mature, mature participation, uh, you know, that election quite often makes sense. You know, if we, you know, we're probably, you know, we're going to have a better chance normally of showing mature participation if we have more things in the mix than if we have fewer. So there are some odd exceptions, but we won't worry much about that right now. That's not today's issue. Now, this case will involve only that issue, as I mentioned, as to whether they were real estate professionals. Hint, 
the court finds neither one showed they were. Remember, though, even if they had met that hurdle, you have to show mature participation in each activity. The IRS was also arguing that even if they were real estate pros, either one of them was, they couldn't meet the mature participation test. So you're not out of the woods merely being a real estate pro. A real estate pro just means you don't automatically have your rental street as passive. But you still have to show that you maturely participate in them. And that means that it's not, as I said, it's not an automatic win for the taxpayer just being a real estate pro. We've seen that fail too. We see real estate pro cases fail in so many ways it's not funny. Okay, now here's the facts in this case. During 2018, uh, one of the spouses was employed full-time by Northrop Grumman Systems, and the other spouse was employed full-time by the Department of Defense. Now, the real problem here is they did not provide the exact number of hours they worked as employees in 2018, but rather stipulated they worked full-time. But again, our problem is, you know, how much time was your full-time? You know, was it just over 1,000 hours? In theory, you went over half-time. Uh, do you consider that full-time? Is it over 2,000? Or do you put in a lot of overtime? And again, we don't know about any of that. We have to kind of come back in and, uh, you know, figure out how that one, how that one works. Right? Now, these taxpayers also managed six rental real estate properties, and they worked, as we said, renting, renovating, etc. They had handwritten logs containing dates, times, and notation as to whether the husband, the wife, or both worked on the property. They did not stipulate the truth or falsity of that statement. That is something that would be very helpful in court, but, you know, okay, fine. And the log list hours attributable to the husband, wife, or both, uh, basically from January 14th through November 13th, not the whole year either. We're trying to clear these, these numbers of hours. It'd be really nice to get the full year in there. The total listed hours equal 1,501.27. The hours on the log that bear the husband's name initially exceed 750, but the total hours on the log that bears the wife's first name do not exceed, equal to or exceed 750. Makes sense. At 1501, they're not going to both be over the 750. So if we accept them as correct, then we have just about 750 hours for the husband. Okay. Now, here's the problem. You got to show that what work he did for Northrop was less than that 750 hours. And the problem is he can't show how many hours, period, except he stipulated full time. If we assume by full time, as I said, we mean a 40 hour a week job. That means we're up in the neighborhood at least of 2000 hours, which means we're not even going to come close to showing that he spent over half his time there which was what the problem was, right? So just taking as correct their logs, ignoring everything else, just accepting the evidence they've given so far as truthful, right? Without worrying about whether it be backed up, they're not a real estate pro. So it's irrelevant now worrying about whether or not they materially participated in this rental activity because it simply doesn't matter. And that does mean the court did not address the reasonableness of the logs and whether they perform more than 70 hours during the taxable year. Because neither of those was important, because even if I accept, you know, the hours for the husband, he can't prove that those hours are more than the hours he spent with his employment at Northrop. So, basic problem he has. So remember, here's the key takeaway from this case, which I think is why it's important, even though it's just a summary opinion case. You have to have the hours for a real estate pro who has another job, not just the rental, but the job, and preferably you have it like from the employer who has been keeping a record of hours. Because remember, the IRS is going to assume or going to, you know, or you're going to at least convince the court that you didn't undercount these hours. You know, if your employer has time records on you, that's going to be the best way to get that one done. But the problem you're going to find here is it's still really difficult to make this work. So the bottom line is that's the issue. Remember that one spouse also solely has to meet the test on the hours, so now it doesn't matter how much time the wife spent. You couldn't have saved this one by having the husband be over 750. But let's say the wife only have a part-time job with 200 hours, so her smaller hours, let's say they were 600, 
would still be more than what you did otherwise, it doesn't work that way. Somebody has to meet one of the two real estate protests. In the example I just read off, neither would meet. So it'd be irrelevant at that point. And just fundamental things, the smell test when a client comes in and wants to be a real estate pro, if they have a full-time job, they claim they're doing something full-time, they have a full-time job, they're running a business, they claim it's not a hobby, right? So presumably there's lots of hours in there. If they have a full-time job, it is very difficult for the taxpayer to be able to qualify as a real estate pro. And the court will basically tell you that they have a, you know, it's, it makes your logs less credible. Uh, you're gonna need a lot more independent evidence that your logs are correct. If you're gonna tell me that they worked over 2000 hours a year at their nine to five job, and they still spent more than those hours on their rentals. I'm gonna to need to have some very, very compelling evidence and records that shows that we're not padding time on the rentals or we're not skipping time on the job. Those will be the two keys. Next up, we're gonna talk about the Schmierling versus Commissioner, Tax Court Summary Opinion 2023-14. This one came out on April the 4th. And this deals with the weird thing known as a uh, SPIF, right? Sales Performance Incentive Fund, called a SPIF. And you see it most often in the auto industry, but it could be any industry to do it. Generally, what a SPIF does, when we talk about a SPIF, is we're going to be paying, let's say, salespeople or other people involved in helping to move our cars, if we're, in this case, BMW, we're going to be paying those salespeople various incentive payments, you know, if they meet the incentives, so if they move so many Beamers. Now, we're not going to give it to their employer who will then pay it to them. We're going to pay it directly to them, right? We're not going to let the employer get it because, let's be honest, there's probably a concern that some of the employers would just pocket the money themselves and not give it to the employees. And Beamer does not want that. Beamer wants those individual salespeople to be loyal to BMW. So, therefore, we're going to pay them. So, this is the structure we've got. Now, the weird part with the SPIF is it has unusual tax consequences that your average car salesperson knows about, but a lot of tax pros don't. And it's a little bit embarrassing. Part of the reason why tax pros don't immediately catch as to how a SPIF works is because I find very few tax professionals actually understand how self-employment taxes and FICA actually work. They, you know, you've, if you've never looked at the underlying law, if you've never looked at the structure and you just memorized rules, you're going to be convinced that when a 1099 comes out from BMW to this person that they're going to need to file, let's say, a Schedule C and they're going to need to pay self-employment tax on those funds. You will be effectively wrong on both. But we'll talk about why. So let's talk about this. The tax consequence arises because this relates specifically to their work as an employee. Their only trader business is an employee. You have to be employed by a BMW dealership to be part of this program. A BMW dealership that participates in the program, you have to be paid by them. So that's the first catch. It's linked to that employment. However, the actual payment does not come from the employer. BMW is going to pay the employee directly and they're not employed by BMW. They're not BMW's employees, but they get wages from, but they get, they basically they're getting this money because of their employment trader business. That's what makes the SPIF interesting, okay? Now there is a 2008 IRS publication 3204. It's no longer on the IRS website. And I think that's mainly because they didn't really want to try to update it to get around the 2017 law changes of what M2 employee business expenses. Because this actually pub does, you know, do, doesn't make it, or I should say has issues with that. So, you know, it's not quite as clear, let's say. It's, 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 it wants to talk about taking it on Form 2106. It's not any expenses related to your SPIF program. And the reality is we know we can't get that. They didn't really want to change that. Then we then had to re-update it in 26. So effectively, Back in 2017, they pulled this, and it's called a publication, but literally it's a flyer. It's like a cartoon, not cartoon, but certainly pen and ink drawn car salesman 
audit. Now, according to that publication, though, and this has not changed because the law didn't change, absolutely no FICA or any other payroll taxes will apply to this payment, right? BMW doesn't, you know, the dealership doesn't get hit with this because they're not paying for it. It's not theirs. They don't issue the check to the employee. The money never goes through their bank account in any way, shape, or form. And BMW doesn't pay FICA because BMW, right, is not employing this person. They're under the direction of the car dealership who pays their salary, right? And, but it's not subject to self-employment tax either, and this is where people get all confused. Uh, you know, because people see, and back in the day, and when this case came down, it would be a 1099 NEC. Well, they see that, they realize it relates to selling cars, that seems to be a business activity, so they want to pick it up on Schedule SE. But you don't, because specifically, as we're going to point out here, self-employment tax does not apply to income received from the trade or business of being an employee, which is what this is. So no FICA, no SE tax. That's how this works, and that's per the IRS. But the tie to employment has another impact on expenses, which has now gotten much worse than it was for this person. But that was what this case was about. They were essentially trying to get the business expenses. Okay, so let's talk about that old publication. And what you'll see on the screen right now, if you're watching the slides on the version of this, is from the publication itself. You, if, you, if you get this spiff, you got a 1099 NEC, or not, not an NEC, I should say, it should still be a miscellaneous these days, but let's say, so you got 1099 miscellaneous, that reports as other income from BMW. You report that income on page one of Form 1040 on the other income line on Schedule 1. That's where you should see it. If you have expenses, they are going to be employee business expenses. And the problem you're going to have here is, unlike what the publication tells you, it's on the screen, what you're going to actually have to realize is that you're not getting any deduction because 2106s don't allow, right? You can't claim employee business expenses as a deduction following the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I think that was the part you want to have to explain. They those say, third, do not report this income on, on Schedule C because they are not engaged in individual trader business and they're not self-employed. No expenses can be taken on Schedule C to offset this incentive payment. That's going to be a key takeaway that we've got from this. And as I say, the good news about payments is they're not treated as wages, not subject to federal income tax withholding, Social Security, Medicare, or federal employment tax, and they're also not considered to be self-employment income and are not subject to SE tax. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And Santa Claus delivered to the car salespeople under these programs. That is, you, you can literally have this, and you, I've seen so many tax professionals get so uncomfortable whenever they're around this thing. They swear no way it could work this way. This has got to be wrong. You know, it's absolutely, this has got to be either you pay SE tax or you pay FICA. Nothing in the law says that, which is the big problem you run into. So here's the key takeaway. In Schmeering, they said only non-employee business expenses are deductible in computing AGI. Schmeering was trying to claim this here, and they're saying, nope, this related to your work as an employee is what we're going to come down to. Self-employment business income does not include the business of an employee. Section 1402A13 makes that very clear, right? It's excluded. And finally, FICA only applies to the employer and wages that are paid from the same under Section 3101 and 3111. Now, based on that, obviously, you know, we have this problem we get here with the self-employed. Now, the court said they noted he was hired as automotive salesperson uh, by a uh, you know, by the company that owned the franchise from BMW of North America. He sold BMW automobiles. Uh, he was basically, he's corporate VP sales manager for McKenna, which was the company he's actually working for. And his duties included managing the used car fleet. 
right? You had various duties, purchasing, etc. The used cars purchased auctions were resold by his, his employer, not him. And the company profited or lost from those. It didn't affect directly his earnings. Probably helpful if he makes money doing it, but that wasn't something that directly helped him or hurt him. Uh, he got a W-2 showing over $200,000 in wages. He also got the performance bonus from BMW, right? So you meet those requirements. There were sanctions if his company was caught cheating, etc. And it was tied back to the company, right? The program rules. If it's determined it was fraudulent reporting, uh, we're going to charge people back and all of those things would happen. As the court notes, the references in this document from BMW refer to McKenna, his employer, not to the individual employee. So as I said, if one participant violated program rules, all the bonus payments to all participants were recoverable. So the taxpayer received compensation through the program and he was issued a 1099 miscellaneous from DMW reporting $37,234 in miscellaneous other income in the year in question. The court notes that nobody claims he was an employee of BMW. The court found uh, he also got some payments from another thing for service contracts, a company called DevX, which was very similar. He got $25.60 under that program. And again, nobody claims he was an employee of DevX, right? Now, he claimed a Schedule C profit or loss in the business, and he had the income on there from these 1099 miscellaneouses. Uh, but he also had $27,000 of various expenses. Won't go through whether those expenses would have stood up on testing or not. Going to find out is it won't matter because he's going to get, at least today, no benefit whatsoever from them. Now, the only way he can do this would be to establish that this BM, these payments from BMW and these payments uh, from the insurance carrier or the company was he was selling these uh, insurance, you know, basically the insurance program, you know, that those payments were not basically from his work as an employee, but rather were from, you know, from him just being, you know, working there, I should say, from him not being an employee, but rather it would be from him having a separate trader business. And the court found that just didn't hold up, right? Uh, he did not have any opportunity to earn a living separate and apart from his status employee of McKenna. If he had been fired by McKenna, he'd be out of these programs immediately. He earned his living from the trader business of being an employee of McKenna. And so this income represents not a separate trader business, but the same trader business being an employee in line right with what we've always said about how this works, you know, what we talked about before. Now, as I said, the income was reported on 1099 miscellaneous, and this is back before the 1099-NEC, the year in question here. Uh, it was reported by the CPA on Schedule C, and I could see a lot of people doing that, right? Um, and the real problem, as I said, is you're working generally. Why people do that? Nothing anywhere says to do that. Nothing official anywhere says to do it. In fact, the, the commentary we have, which I realize has been printed for a while, but Uncle Fed still has some on their site for that old publication. If you search for it, you know, what we have is pretty clear in the law and here that, you know, in the law and in that publication that, yeah, this doesn't go on a Schedule C. It's not a trader business. It's just more employment income is what we're getting here. But too often we memorize rules. And I think that's the biggest flaw I see and what gets people in trouble more often than not in tax is attempting to memorize specific rules for specific situations without an underlying understanding of why that's the answer. This is kind of like those days. Remember when we had that in math courses in high school? It's not, it wasn't when you got to more advanced math courses, you know, in high school or college, the answer isn't really the key. If, if all somebody gave you was the final answer and you just put that down, you're probably not going to pass the course because what they want to see is how you arrived at that answer. Because here's the catch. Knowing why that's the answer is way more important than knowing it's the answer. I think that's the key issue. It's the same thing here. Knowing why you're putting that 1099, let's say NEC number on Schedule C, 
And specifically then understanding that you've got those lists of potential exclusions, that means it makes it much easier. We see another problem comes up on SE all the time is people take the last case. We talked about here, if they've been a real estate pro, I might be concerned. I've heard this more than once. Well, does that mean they're going to pay self-employment tax on their, if they make income off the rental? The answer is no. Nope, doesn't mean that. There's a specific exclusion for rental real estate from self-employment tax. But you have to know the law and know to look at 1402 and the list of things that are in and out before you'll ever figure out there's exclusion there. Next up, IRS announcement 2023-12 issued on April the 7th. There's a new 20, December 22 ver, 2022 version of Form 3115 requesting a change in accounting method. It replaced the prior December 18 version that we started the year with. So here's the catch. Basically, whenever you have to make a change in accounting method, right, we're going to put together the change in accounting method. A change in accounting method, generally you have to get the IRS permission. Now that permission may be in many cases, automatic, which means you attach a 3015 to the filed return. In other cases, not covered by an automatic change, which you see far less frequently, then you have to actually send the 3115 in and pay a fee to get the IRS to rule and say, okay, we'll let you change your method. Prior to April 18th, it was still okay to use the December 2018 version. Now the IRS announced on April 7th though, that once April 18th, which by the way, that date was not chosen at random. It means your returns on extension, uh, obviously past two entities would, you know, obviously we got an extra month after the original due date, but let's say an individual return or a C corp return calendar year on extension is going to have to use the new 3115. Okay. So that form is one you must use going forward. Hopefully your tax software is taking that into account at this point. They did accept the old form, but just through the filing deadline. So bottom line, you need to be using the new form. Now, if you're filing, if you're having to file a form 3115, double check that your software is using the December 22 version, right? And if you're for some reason manually filling out a 3115, make sure you got, you've gotten the December 22 version and also make sure in either case that you're looking at the December 22 instructions, because that'll tell you, you know, the minor changes. There are a couple of changes there. Um, they had a change related to deferral method for advanced payments under 451. And then they also have the official way in there of asking for a change in your research and development. Now having to amortize instead of expense those annually. That's also on there. Those are the two key changes from the December bit. The key thing to remember though is you have to start using this form now. You can't be using the alternative, can't be using the old form. You could up until the due date, April 18th, can't anymore. Next, we're going to talk about an IRS information letter that was sent to the office of Senator Cornyn on April the 6th, 2023. It's information letter 2023-001. It was the inquiry from Senator Cornyn's office. I mean, officially from Senator Cornyn, but we know it's really his office, almost certainly. He had doubt. He sat down and wrote this letter. Generally, a constituent is writing, is confused. The senator's office staff will then, you know, oppose this on behalf of the, you know, the Senate. They'll basically write up a letter the senator will sign off on. That'll request guidance. And when the guidance comes back to the staffer, uh, they then go ahead and forward that on to the constituent. That's how they do some of this work, right? Now, the IRS explains, if you have a professional employer organization, you know, if you're using a PEO, right? And, you know, we have clients that do that because they don't want to take care of the human resource side. They don't want to take care of having to take care of the medical insurance type things. They don't want to have to take care of the qualified plan, etc. So the PEO supplies all of that. But the problem here is that the employees become employees of the PEO who files the payroll tax return. Now, the problem there is, of course, is I'm sure the taxpayer in this sense uh, qualifies, you know, they say, wait, we qualify for the ERC. We had a full shutdown. We had the drop in revenue. We qualify for the ERC for some or all periods that it was available. But, you know, but, but we don't really have any way to file the claim for refunds. So how do you do that? And Jarris points out that back in their issue, when they issued notices a while back, 
that, in fact, it is up to the PEO to file the claim for refund. And then the PEO will get the money back to the PEO, and then it's between them and their clients on getting the money back to the individual taxpayer. But the IRS is only going to deal with the PEO in this case. The individual company cannot apply for the employee retention credit on their own. Right? Uh, you know, you're not. Now, the first thing IRS points out is you don't have to use a PEO. And of course, if you didn't, you qualify to just directly claim the employee retention credit, right? A lot of companies work with them for convenience and other issues in those issues. Now, right, they have rules in place, they note here, to help protect the interests of employees and employers and PEOs, uh, you know. And they do specifically note that if you look at notice 202120, there are specific provisions, a specific question and answer in there that specifically talks about how you file a claim for refund or how you filed for the ERC. You know, if it's, you know, the PEO files on behalf of its various employers, the employer has to provide information about their eligibility. The PEO then would basically file the appropriate claim for refund. And hopefully under your agreement with the PEO that any of that refund money would come back to you. Okay. And the IRS explains that the issue here is the PEO is the taxpayer. You know, your client who hired the PEO has only a contractual relationship with the PEO. The PEO is the one who actually pays the payroll taxes, files reform, do all those things. And it's under their employer identification number. And that means, as the IRS notes, that's how the claim for refund has to come in. Do the PEO will then take care of paying things out, right? All of those issues. So as I said, Congress wrote the ERC. It's directly tied to paying payroll taxes. That's why you have to go through the PEO. So bottom line, your client's using a PEO. They qualify for the employee retention credit. The PEO has to file the claim for refund. The money will come back, hopefully, to the PEO. And then the PEO is going to have to uh, you know, forward that money on to your client. And although they provide client-by-client -client information on the Schedule R, it attaches, the, their client cannot claim the credit. They're very clear about this. It has to be the PEO, right, in this case. And in this case, actually, you know, they give the money back there, and as I say, it's purely a contractual deal between the PEO and their client about how the money goes back, how much goes back, how much the PEO could take out for processing the claim for the client and other things like that would go back to your contract. They also note, which is important, that both the individual employer and the PEO are liable for any payroll taxes, employment taxes owed because of an improper claim for credit. I mean, it's generally true for everything, but the PEO does need to understand that taking an aggressive position because the client talked to an ERC mill who, you know, believes that everybody in the country, if you didn't have a business, apparently, qualifies to get the, PEO, get the, you know, the money from the ERC and they're claiming these huge sums, there is exposure to the PEO as well as the taxpayer in that case. Finally, let's talk about uh, that FinCEN put out some, an FAQ guidance for beneficial ownership reporting under the Corporate Transparency Act, right? This is on their website titled FinCEN Issues Initial Beneficial Ownership Information Reporting Guidance. It was published there on March the 24th. Now, warning right now, at this very instant, it appears that FinCEN updated their certificate on their website. And the problem is that that updated certificate uh, isn't properly configured, so Chrome really hates it. So if you try to go to the website until that gets corrected, you're probably going to have trouble. Um, and current Chrome doesn't offer you the option to go directly to the site anyway. Uh, some other browsers may. Again, but consider the potential risk, because while almost certainly the problem is not that somebody has taken over FinCEN's website and it's going to load up your machine with malware if you go in or steal your identity, uh, we can't ever fully say for sure. So be aware and just, just be careful there. But let's talk about what's in here and 
what I got from the copy of the FAQ I had last week before I tried to pull it down today for giving you the background. I do have the link on our copies of the slides that you can download from the currentpoltaxdevelopments.com site. Uh, but basically, right at this instant, trying to go to that site in Chrome is going to get you an error message, um, which may not be terribly helpful. Now, this is guidance on the upcoming Corporate Transparency Act beneficial ownership rules. Those rules we discussed before, we'll go quickly over them here today, but generally, every business that's organized, or not even business, every, every LLC and every corporation who's not otherwise exempt, and there's a set limited a list of exemptions. Let me show you where you're going to find that in the FAQ. Uh, if you're not exempt, you have to record. If your LLC or corporation was in existence on January 1st of 2024, then you have to file your initial report by, you know, before January 1st of 25. However, if you form an LLC or a corporation in 2024, that's not an exempt. That one's going to be facing a much shorter time frame to get the reports in, right? Now, this FAQ answers the answers to questions about the reporting requirement that's coming up because they're aware people are now starting to look at this in more details. And then there is a one-pager, uh, two couple one-pagers on key filing dates and key questions related to this. So a couple of kind of useful things to just hand out to clients. Here's your filing dates. Be aware of this. And number two, here's some quickie questions about this. Okay. okay. Now, that introductory video and more detailed information, uh, the video is about the reporting requirement in that case. Let's talk about some of the things we have in the FAQ. When do I need to report my company's beneficial ownership information? As I said, company created a registered business for January 1st, 2024. We'll have until January 1st, 2025 to file its ownership report. That's not your problem. That, again, then we just have to do it sometime in 24, right? Or even on January 1st, 25, if that's what you want to spend a New Year's Day doing. However, a company created or registered, created or registered on or after January 1st, 2024, will have, a 30, will have 30 days to file its report. It runs from the date you receive actual notice as creation or registration is effective, or if the Secretary of State or similar office first provides public notice of its creation or registration, whichever is earlier. So there's the one catch. You have clients that like to form LLCs, let's say to hold rental properties they acquire. If they acquire a rental property in, let's say, April 10th of 2024, well, they got 30 days to get that information about the beneficial owners up to FinCEN, or they could face some fairly substantial penalties. Uh, when will they begin accepting reports? Uh, January 1st of 24, they're not going to accept anything before then. Okay? It is going to be apparently electronic. Not surprising since it's FinCEN. But that, that appears to be how the structure will go on. Now, what companies are required to report? Now, remember, there, what you have to understand here is you're not going to find a small company exception. Because the whole point of this is to catch money laundering, which would use very small thinly capitalized you know, entities to move money through and hide ownership. So generally, who has to report? A domestic or foreign for a domestic company, which is what we'll do with for the most part. You need, if you're a corporation, a limited liability company, or an entity created by filing of a document with the Secretary of State or any other similar office under the law of a state or an Indian tribe. So basically, your corporations and LLCs have to register. Right, just start out. That's going to be our starting point. Okay. If you're a foreign company, uh, you're a foreign corporation, LLC, or other entity formerly law of foreign country, and you're registered to do business in a U.S. state or tribal jurisdiction by filing a document with Secretary of State or similar office with that tribe, or with that tribe or with the state, then you're also considered to be a covered entity. Um, you know. And we talked about that a state means any state in the United States, such as Colombia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Commonwealth of North, Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and any other Commonwealth territory or possession of the United States. So essentially, any sort of U.S. thing is going to trigger this reporting requirement to FinCEN. Now, are there exemptions? Yeah, there, there's a bunch. 
there are 23 entities that are exempt. So quickly, uh, security reporting issuers, you follow the SEC and that stuff, generally you're considered to be exempted. A U.S. governmental authority is out there. Certain banks, and that was certain, I was going to go check the reg to see what it is. A federal or state credit union, there and there. A bank holding company is exempt. Uh, certain types of money transmitting or money services business, again, something to go read if you have, you know, if you have that sort of thing. A uh, broker or a dealer defined in Section 3 of the Securities Exchange Act 1934 as registered under Section 15 of that act. That broker or dealer is, does not need to worry about registering their entity. Uh, security exchanges or clearing agencies defined by Section 3 of the Security Exchange Act of 1934, and that's registered under Section 6 of or 17A of that act. Also, certain other types of entities registered with the SEC. Again, was a certain types. You've got to go look that one up. Similarly, certain types of investment companies is defined in Section 3 of the Investment Company Act of 1940 or investment advisors designed in Section 202 of the Investment Advisors Act. Certain types of venture capital fund advisors are exempt. Insurance companies defined in Section 2 of the Investment Company Act of 1940 are exempt. State licensed insurance uh, producers and operating presidents in the United States. Commodity Exchange Act registered entities. Any public accounting firm registered in accordance with Section 102 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of, 20, of 2002, which means, you know, if you're registered with Peekaboo, you're in. If you're not registered with Peekaboo, then you're going to have to file the form for your firm. Uh, any financial market utility regulated by the Financial Stability Oversight Council under Section 804 of the Payment, Clearing, and Settlement Supervision Act of 2010. Uh, certain pooled investment vehicles are exempt. Certain types of types exempt entities, entities assisting a tax exempt entity described in the section above. Large operating companies with at least 20 full-time employees, more than 5 million gross receipts or sales, and operating presence physical site in the United States. That number 21 there is the one you're probably going to be using the most often as your exception. If you have a client with over 5 million in gross receipts, at least 20 employees, and they have a physical place in the U.S., that one doesn't have to file. They can ignore it. Uh, subsidiaries of certain exempt entities, certain types of inactive activities that were in existence on or before January 1st, 2020, the date of enactment of the Corporate Transparency Act. So you got any of those things, if you don't do anything with them and they've been inactive since before 2020, you can ignore their filing. Right. Now, as a note, many of these are already registered by the federal, state, and local government. That's why I don't need to register. We can always figure out easily, you know, who controls them, right? And if you need more information about any of these, go look at the actual original regulation that's found in 31 CFR section 1010.380C2. Now, who's a beneficial owner of property? Because that's the key. We've got to report information, including like names, addresses, social security numbers, or passport numbers, driver's license numbers things like that, for anybody who's a beneficial owner. Now, this is one who directly or indirectly exercises substantial control over the company or who directly or indirectly owns or controls 25% or more of the ownership interest. That means actual ownership of 25% or more is going to force you on the list. Number two, um, you know, even if you don't have that ownership, if you exercise substantial control, right? And any senior officer is deemed to have substantial control of an operating entity. That means you've got to always report your senior officers. Right? That, that's how this background will go. Now, ownership interest refers to arrangement established stock ownership in the company. And additional information is found in the report. Again, if you own more than 25% of the stock of this corporation, more than 25% of the capital interest of the LLC, you're going to be on this report. Now, remember, you also have to update this report within 60 days whenever anything changes that was on the original report. So there's going to be an updating issue here. If you have not looked into this and haven't had at least some preliminary discussions with your clients about how important it's going to be to get this right and also how important it's going to be if they establish a new entity beginning January 1st of next year, that they let you and their attorney know this is what's happening so that we can get this stuff all timely filed. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 24th, 2023. Uh, 
As always, uh, you can contact me at edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. You can also find me out on the discussion forums, the connect forums, or Arizona, New Mexico, Arizona, New Jersey. I'll get it right there. Uh, Minnesota, Washington, Illinois. Um, we'll take a look in there and see what's there. Uh, also, I do take a look at what Idaho publishes on their site. As I said, we got some other things happening. There is a one thing I know for sure want to cover next week will be a brand new release on Friday that came down that, that discusses uh, whether or not a person holding cryptocurrency, where the underlying currency, which happened in the case, which happened to Ethereum, we go from proof of work to proof of stake as our way that we are going to have the consensus mechanism for updating the blockchain. And, you know, and getting compensated for doing that. Uh, so as I said, proof of stake issues versus proof of work. Uh, I'll give you the quick answer is the IRS says that's not a taxable event. But it is interesting to look at the reason why it's not and, you know, how we want to talk about that going forward. So I know we have that coming up next week as a major discussion point. Also, probably next week we'll deal with a case of a taxpayer who thought they had paid $875,000 legal uh, settlement before the end of the year that they believe would be deductible, only to discover that when we looked back at how it was paid, that unfortunately it hadn't ever left their attorney's control by the end of the year. So we'll talk a little bit about those sorts of things. Otherwise, I plan to see you next week. Uh, we will be again doing, I'll try to be doing now more updates on the web as well. So we have those, you know, articles updated as we go through. We'll have some stuff on that. We do have that article up about the uh, issue for, you know, proof of work versus proof of stake issues, that changeover issue, that's up already. I'll be doing probably a bit more writing, so you'll see a few things there. Otherwise, we'll see you next week and be back for more current federal tax developments.